How did Jeff Bezos realize you could sell anything on the internet? Why did Bill Gates create Control-Alt-Delete? How did synchronized swimming prepare Christine Lagarde for international politics? What made Bob Iger bet big on Marvel? And what inspired Diane von Furstenberg to create the wrap dress? On The David Rubenstein Show, peer-to-peer conversations, I uncover the untold stories of the world's most successful leaders. Listen now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to For the Ages, a history podcast presented by the New York Historical Society and hosted by David Rubenstein. Join us as he deftly explores the rich and complex history of the United States with some of the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers, because history matters. Hello, I'm David Rubenstein, and I'm pleased to be joined in conversation today with Doug Brinkley, the Catherine Sonoff Brown Chair in Humanities and Professor of History at Rice University. He's a presidential historian and a presidential historian for the New York Historical Society. And today we are discussing his book, American Moonshot, John F. Kennedy and the Great Space Race. Doug, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me, David. I appreciate it. Doug, I've read many books about the race to the moon. And, uh, you know, there's great books about how we got to the moon. Uh, the flight itself, what uh, Neil Armstrong said on the moon, the flight back, all those kinds of things. But I hadn't read a book before about the history of how we actually decided to go to the moon. And so this book is a very good, maybe by far the best book I've ever read uh, on a subject relating to President Kennedy's decision to say we're going to go to the moon and what became later called a moonshot. So what gave you the idea for writing about the history of what led President Kennedy to do this kind of uh, moonshot? You know, I was growing up in Ohio at the time of Apollo 11 in the summer of 1969, and everybody had moon fever. We were tuning in to Walter Cronkite on CBS and nonstop coverage. You know, the question was, can humans break the shackles of planet Earth? And it just so happened that the first astronaut, Neil Armstrong, grew up down a country road from my town. He was from Wapakoneta, Ohio, and the idea that the first human on the moon would have been a guy from, you know, nearby in a small town uh, was just just enthralling. So I was collecting moon gear and paraphernalia. We would go look at the stars, look at the moon outside. My mom would make food. We'd stay up late through the ordeal of Apollo 11. And I remember every minute of it. I mean, remembering when the astronauts were finally recovered, were in quarantine and Richard Nixon's looking at them in the glass where they were in private confines. And I just always stayed with me. I later had the high privilege of doing the official oral history for NASA of Neil Armstrong. Uh, It happened right after 9-11 and all airspace was shut. And I thought my interview was going to be canceled with Armstrong. And they said, Neil doesn't cancel anything. And I'm standing there on a tarmac in Houston, and this little plane comes in. It's Neil Armstrong flying in from Cincinnati. It was obvious he'd fly his own plane. He's a pilot his whole life. I, I, I don't know why I thought it unusual, but at the moment, it, it was odd seeing him just land and walk right out only by himself, no assistance. And we sat at a table with Mr. Abbey of Johnson Man Space Center. And I spent a whole day talking to Armstrong. After that, after my time with Armstrong, um, I thought maybe I'll write a book on Neil Armstrong. Got the big interview that nobody gets with him. 
But the more I looked at it, what was interesting was to me why we did it. How did the United States make a big decision in the 1960s in an era with civil rights and women's rights, you know, Martin Luther King protest and assassinations of Malcolm X and Medgar Evers and Bobby Kennedy and, of course, JFK? How in that tumultuous decade did we go to the moon? How did America do it? And I started the book with Kennedy because it's really Kennedy's hobby horse to this. It's, we wouldn't have gone to the moon, certainly not at this rapid pace that we accelerated things if it wasn't for Jack Kennedy. So I started following aviation from the time he was born in 1917 in Massachusetts, right at the time of World War I. And airplanes were becoming big. Aviation was coming big. And in the 1920s in boys' culture, you would get ray guns. Space gear was replacing cowboy and Indian toys. Um, you had Buck Rogers on radio. And there became a kind of um, let's go explore the galaxy moment in the 1920s. And JFK fell into that kind of pop culture zeitgeist. So let me ask you, uh, you talk about uh, the history of the moon. What is the moon? Where did it come from? And was there a book written about going to the moon by Jules Verne that was amazingly prescient about what actually happened? The moon was actually part of Earth. It broke off, broke away. Jules Verne, we call him a science fiction writer, but was a a, a seer, great imagination. And he ended up writing a book, a novel, uh, predicting Americans would be the first humans on the moon. There would be three astronauts on the mission, and that they would take off from somewhere in Florida, you know, pretty close to where it took off. He had the days in space down right. So it's kind of a prophecy book. And that was read by a lot of people. And I think particularly NASA engineers and aerospace people that don't tend to have a, a literary imagination, because uh, they have to be precise in their slide ruler work, uh, nevertheless, we fell under the spell of Verne. It may have been subliminally, but people that were at all interested in astronomy loved Jules Verne's novel. The other thing that is occurring is due to World War I, there became an acceleration of military aviation. A lot of that in our country took place in Ohio near Cleveland. The idea under Woodrow Wilson that we need to have military aviation. Uh, World War I was, you know, we famously had the battles in the sky. So that becomes a big part of the United States um, national security. Can we build up an air force? Of course, today's air force wasn't created till 1947. That, that was a Truman event. What we had was Army Air Corps and Navy and resources, very slender resources were starting to be put into studying space. What nobody could accomplish, David, and let's call it the 20s and 30s, pre-World War II, nobody could put a projectile 60 seven miles straight up and enter space. Nobody knew how to put any object that could go out of Earth's gravity grip. And this became a bit of a competition in itself. And it gets finally done by the Nazi rocketeer Werner von Braun, who for Hitler is building vengeance weapons. Uh, Hitler saw the future as being missiles. And Hitler wanted missiles that can arc 260 miles from Rotterdam, Den Haag, you know, occupied territory that the Nazis had, and launch those missiles into London, destroy and flatten London, and later get a trajectory of what we call today intercontinental ballistic missiles 
meaning from London, if Nazis flattened and took over England, they could then send missiles to New York and Washington and Boston. So this becomes a very big deal, missile technology in Germany in the 20s and 30s, in the U.S. less so. In fact, our only serious rocketeer, Robert Goddard, was testing in Clark University in Massachusetts, and he would get arrested for noisemaking and for disturbing the peace. He was developing liquid fuel rockets, which was the ticket. Goddard was right. The New York Times ran an ugly piece about him being a crazy scientist, and he couldn't take the pressure of the law and the bad press, and he moved out to New Mexico, Roswell, where in the 1920s, 30s, Goddard, with a little bit of grant money, start testing his rockets out there in the desert. Hence, people weren't crazy seeing weird objects out there um, in an area that was, you know, very rural and, uh, and you know, just hard scrabbled shepherds and miners. So during World War II, um, Werner von Braun senses towards the end of the war that the Nazis are going to lose. So he decides to try to sell himself to the Americans as somebody could help them with rocket technology. The Russians are interested in that rocket technology as well. How does Werner von Braun not only overcome having uh, developed rockets that killed many people in England, he used concentration camp people to help him with some of the labor. How does he manage to convince the Americans that he's a person that they should not treat as a war criminal, but they should bring to the United States and treat him as a, as a friend? Well, in my opinion, von Braun was a war criminal, uh, and the Jewish slave labor that he used was heinous. These are some of the worst underground tunnels, working conditions. Um, you know, thousands just died. He had no sense of humanity, von Braun. He was a scientist on a mission and was answering to Hitler. Never wanted to glamorize von Braun. He, he was brilliant, however, and uh, his science and his blueprints were the coin of the realm. The most needed artifact from World War II was his collection of data. And he quite cleverly forged papers, got a railroad train, and brought in 137 of his Nazi rocketeers. And they snuck this train and disappeared into the Alps. They took with them all of their materials on how to build sophisticated rockets. They hid it in caves and then pushed boulders over it. They used some dynamite to do this, then left it there and went further, then hid out in an old little Olympic chalet way up high in the mountains. And then Werner von Braun sent his brother Magnus on a long and arduous bicycle trip to find the American troops that were now in Germany and to surrender. When our army intelligence people captured Magnus von Braun, they drilled him. They found out that indeed he was the brother of Werner von Braun and a deal was struck. If von Braun did not at all cost want to be captured by the Russians, they would have moved him up to some camp in Siberia and made him work for Stalin. If the British got a hold of von Braun, they would have executed him. He had killed so many people in London. So the deal was struck that Truman agrees to, that Werner von Braun and his 137 scientists get moved to Fort Bliss near El Paso as POPs, prisoners of peace. And there... In El Paso, they're allowed to bring their spouses, uh, but they have to be under constant sentry watch, you know, military personnel, police monitoring their behaviors. From 45 to 50, they were good citizens there in the sense they didn't cause trouble. And now they were working. We were developing the missiles based on their technology, but still they were stigmatized by some. 
Dwight Eisenhower would never do business with von Braun. His weapons of mass destruction and his killing of Jews made him persona non grata. He reluctantly had von Braun move to Huntsville, Alabama with his 137 Rocketeers during the Korean War because it was clear that this was where military was headed, that we were heading into a missile world. Um, nevertheless, in the 50s as president, Eisenhower would give government contracts to the Navy, Navy aviation, not the Army. He was an Army guy. And they called it the Vanguard program. And any, David, of the missiles you see taking off of Cape Canaveral and, and you watch them crumble, those were Navy vanguards that Eisenhower backed because he wouldn't greenlight the rockets of the Nazi von Braun in Huntsville. Jack Kennedy didn't have that. Jack Kennedy saw von Braun as just a young guy in the war like I was a young guy in the war. Eisenhower was born in the 19th century. Stalin was born in the 19th century. De Gaulle born in the 19th century. Churchill, von Braun and I are 20th century jet age guys and working soldiers of the war don't hold each other accountable. And in 1953, Kennedy got to be a judge as a young senator for Time Magazine's Man of the Year. Henry Luce picked JFK and Warner von Braun as judges who would be Time's Man of the Year. And they had picked Chancellor Konrad Adenauer of West Germany, former mayor of Cologne, as Time's Person of the Year in 53. So that's how quick we were trying to rehabilitate West Germany after World War II. And of course, let them into NATO, divided Germany. So Kennedy and von Braun both were debonair. They both loved clothes. They both were considered playboys. They developed easy shorthand and had developed a friendship as early as 1953. So in the late 1950s, when Eisenhower is still president, Russia surprises the world by launching a Sputnik. And then they uh, surprise the world later by actually sending a man into space and then a man around the Earth in orbit. What is the impact of that on Eisenhower and then later Kennedy? Well, you know, there's only one time in world history that a country has a monopoly on nuclear weapons, and that's the United States from 1945 to 1949. But in that all-important year, 49, Russia gets atomic capacity. They test the bomb, and it's successful. And China turns communistic. And now the Cold War is really kicking in. And Eisenhower in the 50s, his defense strategy was called the New Look. And that was an idea that he thought that we were spending too much on the military, Eisenhower, that we needed to put more money into CIA and into nuclear weapons but cut standing armies, cut the budget. Eisenhower was a fiscal conservative. He wanted a balanced budget. And he thought that, you know, there had to be cuts in what we call the Pentagon today. Well, alas, when they put Sputnik up in October of 1957, the first satellite, it was a clear indication that the Russians in many people's minds had been the first to put a satellite in space, that they were beating us. And Kennedy's standing right there criticizing Eisenhower, your new look, your defense on the cheap. He outhawked the Republicans, Kennedy. It's making us lose the Cold War. I want to win the Cold War. He's actually comes up with the term JFK, the missile gap. If you pull up an Oxford dictionary right now, you'll see John F. Kennedy missile gap. It became his signature phrase. We're losing the Cold War under Eisenhower. There's a missile gap with the Soviets. Well, when they beat us in the first satellite and they put the first um, creature into space, you know, they, they get a, you know, a dog into space. Um, and then there, by 1961, put the first human in space, a cosmonaut, Yuri Gagarin. 
you know, there was some truth. Russia was on a roll and uh, we had to, we were playing a kind of catch up game. I think our technology, David, in the 50s was much more sophisticated than what Russia was doing. And we were interested in things that they weren't like re-entry. They put a dog in space and let it incinerate up there. They had no desire to bring the dog back. We would put a chimpanzee into space, successfully bringing the creature back to Earth. So in some ways, we already had a much more sophisticated space military program. Eisenhower, due to criticisms of Sputnik, creates NASA in 1958, and um, it becomes a windfall for money, funding. Uh, Lyndon Johnson directs a lot of the money to his home state of Texas. Hence, Houston goes from being the Bayou City to the Space City USA. And now today, Houston has the baseball team, the Astros, and NBA team, the Rockets, and all the rest. And Kennedy is a little more mute on the 50s on, on NASA, but but everybody in the country loved the, the rollout of the Mercury 7 astronauts. Ike picked 7 astronauts that were going to go to space. And they were all white men, 5'10 and under. They all had heroic names, Scott Carpenter and John Glenn, uh, some from the Army, some from the Navy. Glenn was a Marine. And um, Life Magazine did a big deal on them. And everybody started thinking, the one of these seven will be the first um, human in space. Well, alas, in 1960, Kennedy gets the nomination. And Nixon is who he runs against, Ike's vice president. And in those famous Kennedy-Nixon debates, I've re-listened to all four of them. There's a cliche, which happens to be largely true. If you watched the debates on television, Kennedy won. If you listened to the debates on substance on radio, Nixon won. But where Kennedy scores real points, puts points on the board, as at one point he says to Nixon, if you are a president, you're elected president, I see a Soviet flag on the moon. I want to see an American flag on the moon. And in another moment in the debate, Kennedy says, Nixon's bragging about meeting Khrushchev and telling him how great America's kitchen appliances are and that we have better toasters and stoves. And Nixon said, we're going to have color TV to Khrushchev. And Kennedy seizes on this until it goes back at Nixon and says, you can keep your toasters and color TV. I'll take my TV in black and white. I want to be number one in rocket thrust. So by the time he comes to presidency, he realizes NASA and space is going to be a front burner space policy concern of the new frontier. So um, when Kennedy becomes president, the organization already known as NASA that Eisenhower created needs a new head. And John Kennedy appoints a man named James Webb, now maybe better known to people today for the uh, name behind the Webb telescope that's now circulating and presenting pictures back. But who was James Webb and why did John Kennedy pick him to be the head of NASA? Tells you Kennedy was pretty good talent scout. That was the best guy to hire for that. He was a loved figure on Capitol Hill. He was a budget expert, Webb. Truman had kind of discovered him, but I'm a big admirer of Dean Acheson, Truman's Secretary of State. And for Acheson to say he was the most effective budget bureau guy he ever met in Washington, I, 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 it tells you a lot for Acheson to praise Webb from North Carolina. And Webb comes in and takes it. He's good at public relations. He's good at messaging. He's great at reading budgets. He convinces Kennedy that part of the way to sell the public on the moon is to beat the Soviets uh, in football terms and 
talk about spinoff technology. Your investment in NASA will help with computer technology. You know, it did create MRIs and CAT scans and firefighter-resistant suits, meaning they conceived of NASA as an incubator for innovation. And uh, Kennedy makes the right call because on the insurances of Webb and believing in Von Braun, who he consults right away, Von Braun, that Kennedy thinks that he had to pick every president. I, I you know, Theodore Roosevelt did conservation, and you know, FDR, the big dams, Grand Coulee or Tennessee Valley Authority, Eisenhower did the interstate highway systems. Every president can have one big like infrastructure push, and Kennedy chose space. He was debating. He loved the oceans. He was looking at desalinization, massive project, but he chose on the moonshot. He's inaugurated in January of 61 on the power of Webb von Braun. It's May 25th, 1961, when he declares we're going to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade and bring him back alive. Well, when he made his first speech about that, it was a speech to Congress. It didn't get that much attention. Why did it not get that much attention? And why did he feel a need to make another speech at a university you know pretty well, Rice University? Well, the, the Bay of Pigs was a disaster for Kennedy early in his administration. But equally devastating was when they put on Kennedy's watch, not Eisenhower's, the first person in the space. The Russians put Yuri Gagarin in space. And Kennedy is livid. He's got egg on his face. This is everybody's going to blame him. He's now the guy leading the you know gap with Russia. And I found it very interesting, David. The word that Kennedy, I saw him use it over and over again. It's almost like a, a, a tick. He would say, "I don't want parody. I don't want them to do something. Then we do something. I want to leapfrog. I want to go over them big." And von Braun tells Kennedy, "I'll get you to the moon." I can get you to the moon, but green light me. Quit hiding me in Huntsville. I will get us to the moon. And Kennedy's reassured by that. And then he puts up Alan Shepard, our first American in space from New Hampshire with Mayflower ancestry, a wonderful American. And people forget about his mission was 15 minutes up and down, but he became a hero. And after that, Kennedy recognized something, the space hero. That he wanted to be in more photos, you know, than than you could imagine with Alan Shepard. In fact, I tell a story, and it is important. Kennedy's sitting in the back of a limo with Lyndon Johnson and the hero of the moment, Alan Shepard, and Newt Minow of the Federal Communications Bureau. They're in a car in Washington going to an event, and Minow mischievously says, "You know, Alan, the astronaut, if uh, if you didn't come back uh, alive, Jack would have blamed Lyndon on on your death." And Kennedy says, uh, no, uh, you got that wrong, Newt. If Alan would have died in space, Lyndon was going to be my next astronaut. <laughs> Kennedy said that in front of Lyndon. And they laughed, but Lyndon didn't find it so funny. The others were laughing. Lyndon was being mocked. Uh, and, and it points to Kennedy now seizing space, stripping it away from Lyndon Johnson, who had been the big Senate advocate of funding in Houston and blah, blah, blah. So to your point, on May 25th, 1961, Kennedy goes to a joint session of Congress held in the middle of the afternoon and the idea, kind of an update on the first six months of office type of thing, and surprises people by saying, we're going to go to the moon, but nobody took it seriously. You know how these State of the Union types were, the president's grandiose, that we're going to be 
carbon free in 10 years and you know no, no no nobody took it really seriously the people that really didn't take it seriously were nasa every engineer at nasa you could think of said oh, what a bunch of bs we could we're not going to make the moon by the end of the decade not not possible we don't even we're not even close we barely got the guy in it you know spam in a can up they used to call them one astronauts we only got him up there 15 minutes and now kennedy's got us on the moon by the end of the decade scientifically not doable on that timetable but kennedy had said it and then he funded it and the aerospace people went with it so it was a boon time that very cleverly on the may 25th kennedy speech may 26th everybody in the aerospace industry a who's who anybody big in that boeing mcdonald world were all meeting in tulsa and von braun was there and kennedy says Warren, do your magic to Von Braun. And Von Braun starts developing all of our rockets. Six Mercury missions under JFK, and they were six for six. All Von Braun built rockets. Uh, only one of the Mercury 7 didn't get on that first wave. Then came Gemini, two astronauts, Apollo 3, and all the rockets are built by Warner Von Braun. It's the triumph of the Huntsville engineers. And yet funding is always questioned. And, and in September 12th, 1962 at Rice University, where I'm a professor, Kennedy came there to get feel the love. Hundreds of millions of dollars had been pumped into Houston, Texas by the federal government. To the point, David, I read a letter from the head of the Harris County, Texas Republican Party, a man named George Herbert Walker Bush, Republican, wrote a letter to all Republicans in Houston, be kind to President and Mrs. Kennedy. All they've given us financially to the city of our county, we need to give them a warm welcome, even though we're over Republicans. And so there was a lot of love in, in Rice, at Rice Stadium that day when Kennedy was at the peak of his oratory. He nailed it. And it was in it's in color. People should pull it up. And it's a speech about public exploration. We're going to do it as Americans. And he writes in it's at the Kennedy Library on the side in his own pen. He writes in, remembering Webb's football analogies, he writes in, why do we go to the moon? Why is it such a challenge and it's so hard? Why do we do it? What's the point? I ask you, why does Rice play University of Texas in football? Because it's a challenge, you know, and he sells it that way. And so under the Kennedy effect, as salesman for space, and he did become very knowledgeable about it, but not at first. But we put 4.6% of our annual budget went to NASA. Today, it's a third of 1%. So Kennedy, in his speech in Rice, has a sentence that uh, uses a rhetorical device that he did in his inaugural address called antithesis, which is to say, uh, we're not going to do this, we're going to do this. And he says, we're not going to the moon because it's easy, but we're going to go because it's hard. Uh, who wrote that speech? Ted Sorensen did most of it. There were memos from some people at NASA where some lines got in. Kennedy wrote some of it himself. Uh, at this point, Kennedy and Sorensen are just not only best friends, but perhaps the greatest speechwriter ever, Ted Sorensen, because he really knew Jack. They were pals. They, they would share motel rooms and travel. And yet the point of it being September 12th was the midterm elections were coming. And Kennedy wanted to brag about his space record. And it was a good one. The astronauts were popular. John Glenn had gone up and became the national hero. 
But Kennedy was making it clear that very year, 1962, we put up Telestar, which was our first communication satellite. So Kennedy had learned that we were going to be where you and I are right now, you know, talking, that we were in a telecommunication age. So it wasn't an uninterrupted uh, path to the moon. Uh, there was a tragedy that happened where three astronauts were burned to death in their capsule. Uh, did that set back uh, the, the moonshot program very much? Yeah, it's a horrible moment in American history. Uh, they were testing a, a, a rocket and three of our astronauts, um, Gus Grissom, Ed White, and Roger Chafee, uh, were incinerated at Cape Canaveral, just a fireball, instant death. And this is 67. And the Vietnam War is draining a lot of money. And Johnson's trying to fund all the Great Society programs. And that's when the big movement came to say, let's cut this moon stuff out. The big argument was, why do we have to do this by the end of the decade? Because Kennedy gave a speech. Can't we do it in 1975? Why does it have to be by 69? We've got to be on the moon. And um, among the biggest protesters were, you know, African-American urban people saying we have poor schools, bad sanitation, and yet we're, we're playing astronaut games. And there were others. There were fiscal conservatives thought it was a waste of money. Barry Goldwater was never happy about all of this. He was angry that Kennedy and Johnson were relying on the Army and Barry Goldwater wanted the Air Force. So there were all these different critics. But Johnson had made a pact with Jackie Kennedy. The meeting after John F. Kennedy was killed, Lyndon said, what can I do for you? They named the Space Center, the Kennedy Space Center, but she said, keep Jack's moon vision alive. And Johnson said, we will. And so he he hung in there with funding it, Johnson. It, it wasn't the political winner in 67 after those deaths. And in 68, he dropped out not running. But it had enough going in it that the timetable was working. And so um, Nixon became president. He knew Nixon that he would be the president to put the first human on the moon. But I have to tell you, David, after those deaths of those three, now we know Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin walked on the moon. But when Nixon's president, it's a gamble. The biggest fear was stranded astronauts. Like they're on the moon and can't get off. And yet we have TV visual of them, you know, dying on the moon and when we cut them off from communications or and they'd be lost and they would just shut down american morale and funding um so it, we who knew what was going to happen right well you point out in your book that there were many different ways to get to the moon the way that we actually did do it which was to have a space vehicle circulating around the moon and then uh, a descent vehicle but that was not thought to be the easiest or the smartest early on is what you point out in your book yeah, that's where that's where von Braun differed. Ron Braun wanted his rocket to go directly to the moon. Uh, that thinking of von Braun can be found today in in the thinking of Elon Musk. Uh, but en other engineers said no. It'd be easier to put this spider-like contraption, the the Eagle, uh, leaving the mothership Columbia, and send that to the moon because that can then move, and then it would be a matter of coordinating the connection. Um, but they felt that that was less risky. And at the very least, if two astronauts died on the moon, the third, Michael Collins would be able to come back and report on what happened. But brilliant American engineering. You know, I have to tell you, I'm stunned when I go travel to places like Purdue University or Rice or Caltech, MIT, what great engineers the United States has produced. I mean, these are remarkable 
thinkers that came up with a scenario that worked flawlessly. Apollo 11 is not just Americans went to the moon. We did it practically without a hitch. So when the actual Apollo 11 is launched and you have uh, three astronauts on it, Neil Armstrong uh, is selected to be the first man on the moon. Why was he selected over Buzz Aldrin, for example? Neil Armstrong um, was a Purdue graduate, um, but I, I would say he was our premier fighter pilot in the Korean War. Uh, and his reputation as a pilot, it's hard to exaggerate how big it was. The the former novelist, I know you'll remember, I don't know if younger listeners would, but James Minchner once wrote a book when Neil was just, nobody heard him, I'm an Ohio pilot. Uh, and Minchner focused a little book about the exploits of Neil Armstrong using a, a fictional name. Armstrong was shot under enemy lines in China. He had two near-death escapes. He was like, we, we just saw Maverick Top Gun movie. He, he was of that group. And his, his quality was, um, he was unflappable. You know, when they did all these tests of, of people, his mind never got scared. Every endurance test known to man, Armstrong had developed a mind where, where he couldn't be rattled. When you met him, you mentioned earlier, you met him and talked to him. Very often when people meet people they have read about, they've idolized, they they find that maybe they're not as good as they had thought. What was your impression of him when you met him? Well, I had known that he was very taciturn and could be demure, and he did not want to do this. He was only doing it because he was the only astronaut who hadn't done a NASA oral history. And so they convinced him when Neil turned 70, he said, I guess I owe you guys one. And they picked me for various reasons. The thing is, I'm a humanities person. And so I was, he was giving me these kind of flipped answers, although on the Korean War, I got more out of them than anybody. I, he really went full bore with me on what happened in Korea. But at one point, we got so comfortable, David. Uh, and I said, did you ever on the eve of the flight, like, look at the moon? And think, my God, I'm going to be standing on the moon looking at Earth. Tell me about that feeling before. Did, did you ever feel that? He said, no. And it, it, he, I, he wasn't jerking me around. He, mind does not think like that. There was no romantic bone in that man's body. He was a military man. Kennedy said we're putting a man on the moon by the end of the decade. It's an American imperative in the Cold War. This is the mission. I'm going to go to the moon and I'm going to come back alive. And so they picked the right guy and he never monetized his moonwalk. His colleague, Buzz Aldrin, Buzz, as you know, has a hot temper. He can blow up at people. He famously recent years punched a paparazzi. He's got he's a, a bombastic character, equally great uh, astronaut. Don't, don't get me wrong. But NASA didn't want that. They weren't looking for somebody who'd come back and be on the talk show circuit. So they picked the right man. Neil Armstrong, all-American boy, rings pretty well, you know? So um, the most famous words spoken in the English language are perhaps the sentence that Neil Armstrong uh, gave when he landed on the moon. What did he say? And did he think that in advance or did he just do it on the spur of the moment? He had corralled his brother to meet him on a old style kitchen table. They grabbed a pad and Neil ran ideas past his brother. And this was the one he liked. Um, it, it, that line is created by Neil Armstrong. That's one giant step for man, one giant leap for mankind. And um, his brother thought it was good. And Neil thought it's the right thing. So he had pre-prepared to say that. 
He did not tell NASA that he was saying that. Nobody knew what he was going to say. To be honest, they had so much going on, they really weren't worried about it. And some people could construe that as being hot-dogging, saying a line like that. Uh, he kept it to himself. There's some debate. Did he say one small step for a man or one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind? He meant to say one giant leap for a man. We don't know definitively whether he said that, uh, or whether it was just from the you know Rocky taping of it. On that um, moon launch and that effort to land on the moon, the, there's a proposal to President Nixon to name the uh, missile or uh, the rocket after President Kennedy because he was his idea. Uh, did President Nixon like that idea very much? No, Nixon nixes that idea very quickly. He was president. He wanted the credit for, for being president. I don't blame him uh, for the first astronauts on the moon. But in the memos I've read back and forth, there was a fear coming out of the White House then you'll Kennedyize the moon. It'll be, if you name the rocket the John F. Kennedy, the next thing the liberals are at ABC News when one of the memos are going to want the moon needs to be named after Kennedy. Hmm. So Nixon and his, particularly his advisors, scratched that idea. However, in NASA culture itself, where there was a military-like thinking about this, they were thinking in terms of finishing Kennedy's martyred fulfillment of the moon mission. So a final question for you, Doug, about this uh, expedition to the moon, this trip to the moon. There is a tape that you uncovered uh, in, and you put in your book that in effect says, Kennedy says to James Webb, look, I want to go to the moon, not for scientific reasons, but because it's a way to beat the Russians and, and more or less. Is that right? It was not a scientific expedition as much as it was a political one. Is that a fair comment? That's a fair comment. Kennedy was a wanted to beat the Soviets. Remember old Joe Kennedy? He, you know, there's no coming in number two. We win. And Kennedy had said in his debates, and he he thought his presidency was riding on doing this. And so when finally our astronauts of Apollo 11 returned, right the second we retrieved them at NASA in both Cape Canaveral and Houston on the big boards were put, Kennedy's say, we're going to put a man by the moon in the decade. And then under it, they flashed up to huge applause, mission accomplished. And at that moment, somebody went to Kennedy's grave at Arlington National Cemetery and left a, uh, a note with flowers that said, Mr. President, the eagle has landed. The public knew this was Kennedy's moonshot come to fruition. Doug, this was a great book. I really learned so much about uh, the moonshot that I didn't know. And of course, the word moonshot is now used in many other contexts. But uh, it was such a leap of faith and a leap of technology to do this that now when people try to do things that are thought to be difficult, conquer cancer, for example, people call these moonshots. And that's why you called your book Moonshot, I assume. The term moonshot originally came from a baseball player, Wally Moon, who um, Vince Scully, a great L.A. Dodgers announcer, when Moon would hit a home run, would say, there it goes, you know, over the left field fence. It's a moonshot. And it became in baseball terms for the Dodgers, a common term. And so that comes from baseball. And the term um, um, the new frontier that Kennedy used came out of a, a document that NASA had developed. And Kennedy applied it to mean his entire administration honoring the frontier of the past, but looking at the new frontiers of space and oceans.
This has been very fascinating. We've been in conversation with Doug Brinkley about his book, American Moonshot. Doug, thank you very much for making the time for this. Thank you, David. I really appreciate it. On behalf of the New York Historical Society, thank you for joining us for another episode of For the Ages, a history podcast hosted by David Rubenstein. We hope you enjoyed it and come back for more. Thanks for your support. You can share your thoughts at public.programs at nyhistory.org.